0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. On today's show, in the midst of a partial government shutdown, Congress returns to Washington with a change of cast. Democrats now have control of the House of Representatives and the ability to block some of the Republican agenda. Congratulations, you are now all members of the
1: 116th Congress.
0: One of those newly elected Democrats is Ann Kirkpatrick of Arizona's 2nd Congressional District. Kirkpatrick represented Northern Arizona in the House for six years before running for the Senate in 2016. Before she left for her most recent trip to Washington, we spoke with Kirkpatrick about her goals and priorities as she returns to the Capitol.
2: Well, you know, I'm the only one of the incoming class who's actually been in the majority. And, and so what I've been talking about is it's not easy to be in the majority. When we were in the majority before, we took on hefty issues legislation, debated it vigorously in caucus, and then came to a consensus. Uh, and this is why I, I support Nancy Pelosi as speaker, because she was able to lead us through that effort and get us together and bring legislation that we could pass. So we never took a bill to the floor of the House that we couldn't pass. And But it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy.
0: You mentioned you support Nancy Pelosi as speaker. You were there last time she was speaker. Does she need to do things differently this time around? And if so, what would you like to see her do differently?
2: Well, let me first say, no other speaker before her or since her has been able to have the accomplishments, legislative accomplishments, that she has had. But yes, it's time to start empowering a new generation of leadership in the Democratic Caucus.
0: What has changed in D.C.? You've been up there for a couple of weeks now. You were out of D.C. for a couple of years. What's changed?
2: You know, I see more bipartisanship. So it's really interesting to me. Uh, And I'll just give you an example. When I first was elected in 2008 and sworn in in 2009, I would make the effort to go over to the Republican side. There really aren't sides in the House. We don't have assigned seating, but people kind of gravitate to one side or the other and sit by my colleagues and get to know them. What I noticed recently is Republicans coming to the Democratic side and getting to know us. And so I really see an effort to unite our country, unite Congress, get rid of the division that we've been under for a couple of years, and really work together for the betterment of our country.
0: So come January 3rd, you are officially a member of Congress. What's your first priority? You hit the ground running. What's number one priority?
2: Well, it's been five weeks since the election, and we haven't stopped going. (laughs) So I'm a little hoarse. My voice is, I lost my voice the day after Thanksgiving. So sorry, it's a little raspy. But went back to DC right away, got my office, uh, set up, hired my staff, my DC staff and my district staff, all experienced people coming back. Ron Barber is my district director, uh, God bless Ron, Ron and Nancy Barber, um, for coming back to public service. So we really want to serve the constituents of this district, be accessible to them, uh, and we've got everything in place to do that. What's the first bill you're hoping to file? So the first bill I'm going to file is my bill to allow DREAMers to work on Capitol Hill. So I introduced this bill before, uh, and it came out of my immigration working group. So I'm setting up working groups on specific issues. My immigration working group last time said if people could hear the stories of of these DREAMers in Washington, DC, we would do the DREAMers Act, and we would pass comprehensive immigration reform. So that's my first bill. It would allow DREAMers to work on Capitol Hill. I plan to be one of the first employers of a DREAMer. I already have somebody in mind. So uh, that's really, really important to me. It breaks my heart to see what's happening just south of here at the border, separation of families, separation of children from their parents, it's inhumane, it's cruel. I can't believe that we're doing this. So I want to address that as quickly as possible.
0: If comprehensive immigration reform comes up and your dreamer bill is in there, including the bill you want to file to have dreamers hired by other members of Congress, but there's also a wall in there, is that something you can vote for? No
2: absolutely not and we don't want a wall in southern arizona a third of our economy comes from mexico we want to build bridges not walls
0: one of the things during the campaign we heard a lot of democrats talk about was impeachment of the president is that something that we need to do right now
2: you know i'm a former former deputy pima county attorney And I never interfered with law enforcement's investigations. They did their investigation, then they wrote up up a report, brought it to me, and I would decide whether or not there was a crime to be charged. And that's the same process we should use with impeachment. Let the investigators do their investigation, write up a report, which I really believe should be made public to the American people, and then we'll decide from there.
0: We're talking with Ann Kirkpatrick, she's the newest member of Congress from Southern Arizona. The second district is different than the first district, which you represented before. Do you have to represent it differently, Uh, just even the political makeup in the second district? It's so close, uh, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, as opposed to the third district, which leans more Democratic.
2: You know, uh, my former district had the northern suburbs of Tucson. So, we always campaigned here in Tucson, have a huge volunteer base here, uh, and the issues are the same, Christopher. I mean, people are still really concerned about the economy and protecting jobs, Uh, students are really still concerned about how they pay off their student loan debt, and families are really concerned about keeping their health care. So the issues are the same.
0: You bring up health care during the campaign in both positive and negative ways. You were quoted as saying the vote for the Affordable Care Act was one of the proudest votes you had when you were in Congress. President Obama has even admitted that it has its problems. Are there changes that need to be made and are they changes that can get made in the current atmosphere?
2: Well, and let, let me just say I did vote for the Affordable Care Act. I was told that if I did, I would lose my next election, which I did, uh, but I made a comeback. And yes, it doesn't need to be changed. One of the problems we've had in Arizona is the lack of insurance companies in the healthcare market. So the bill that I want to introduce would allow people to buy into Medicare at any age. So it's paid for because they're buying in, paying an insurance premium, but Medicare is a good system. I've never met anyone who didn't like their Medicare.
0: Arizona and the other Colorado River Basin states are working on a drought contingency plan right now. Is this something the federal government needs to get involved with, or should the federal government leave it to the states of the Colorado River Basin to figure out?
2: You know, I just had a meeting with Senator Kyle, who is our water expert in Arizona. And he's willing to lead our delegation through this process. And one of the things he encouraged us to do is get to know our colleagues in the upper and lower basin because we're gonna have to figure this out.
0: When it comes to your time in Congress, have you had a moment yet, maybe when you went back to DC and saw the craziness and said, oh gosh, what did I do? I have three grandkids. I could have just stayed with their craziness in Southern Arizona.
2: I've had those moments. I think I had one of those moments today on my drive here, <laughs> but um, you know, I I have an opportunity, and, and my favorite quote is Thomas Edison, who said, opportunity is missed by, by m- most people, because it's it comes dressed in overalls, and it looks like work. So I've got my jean jacket on today. I'm ready to get to work, uh, and I hope to have a, you know, create a better life for my grandchildren.
0: All right, well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Ann Kirkpatrick, who was sworn in as the newest representative of Arizona's 2nd Congressional District on Thursday. What does a Democratic House mean for Republicans and President Trump? We'll chat with an Arizona political scientist about that right after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're taking a look at the new Congress. It's a new era in Washington, D.C. Democrats are in control of the House, but will it be smooth sailing? For thoughts on that question and the fate of investigations into the Trump administration, we turn to University of Arizona political scientist Samara Klar.
3: Well, I think the Democrats are intent on keeping these investigations going. So any hopes that Trump had of ending the Mueller investigation or any other investigations into any sort of misbehavior, is that's not going to end. That's going to keep going. And they seem pretty adamant about it. So that will probably consume the next two years, just as it has consumed the last two years.
0: (laughs) With the Democrats in control, everybody Mm -hmm. in the House, everybody is watching them. Yes. What are the pitfalls that are standing out there waiting for them uh, when things really get going?
3: Well, one of the problems the Democrats are facing right now, just in terms of public opinion, is sort of perceived fractures within the party, especially as 2020 gets closer and closer, the debates or whatnot starting next summer, is that right? Yeah. So um, they're going to be facing a lot of scrutiny, especially in terms of the leftist Democrats and the centrist Democrats. There's a perception that there's a lot of disagreement there. Whether that's the case, I'm not so sure. What we have right now is a really active, the start of a really active primary season. And that could end up being a little distracting for the Democrats. who are just trying to get some things done.
0: We had Elizabeth Warren declare she's running for president uh, before the end of 2018, just hours before, but still. So yeah, primary season for yes, 2020 is here.
3: It has started. The election starts earlier and earlier every <laughs> every time. <laughs> but that's already going to be a huge story, and that's not going anywhere. We're already seeing so much polling about, you know, who the front runner is and who, who's the preferred candidate for the Democrats. So that's going to take up a lot of a lot of media time, I think, in the next couple of years.
0: When it comes to Democrats in the Senate, like Kirsten Cinema, sure. our newly yep. elected uh, Democrat.
3: Yes, that's right. From
0: Arizona. Senate's still Republican. Um, how is she going to function? How are Democrats going to function in that Republican Senate, knowing that there are more Democrats across the hall?
3: well the senate ha- composition hasn't changed um in, in in favor for the democrats the republicans actually picked up a couple of seats uh, so we're going to see largely in the senate what we've seen before but we have now is uh republicans who might be a little more courageous in terms of arguing against their president we already saw mitt romney publish a pretty scathing op-ed in the washington post criticizing president trump so i think the democrats can hope potentially that the republican senators this, this term are going to be a little more defiant than they were in the last couple of years.
0: Staying in the Senate and in Arizona, at the end of the year, Governor Ducey appointed Martha McSally to fill out the remainder of, of John McCain's term as a Republican. She lost the Senate race in Arizona in November. Does she face some different challenges uh, because of that as she comes into the U.S. Senate?
3: Well, you know, in, in her defense, it was a close race. It wasn't as though she lost in a landslide. So there is a a large proportion of the constituency here in Arizona who who do support now Senator McSally. You know, this was really a big gift to her because now she's an incumbent. And when she faces her now re-election, she's going to have an incumbency advantage. So that was a huge, huge gift to her. Now, it's possible that some might see her as slightly discredited, but you know, I really don't think so. I think that, especially in the Senate, it's an extremely cordial body. She will be welcomed as any other senator and her constituents, many of many of whom are probably actually happy to see her in there.
0: We're talking with Samara Clark. She's a political scientist at the University of Arizona. You mentioned uh, Martha McSally will presumably be running in 2020 as an incumbent to, to fill the remainder of John McCain's term. Is that a troublesome thing because she's got some tough votes coming uh, in the Senate, various confirmations, uh, potential fallout from the Mueller probe. You said it was a gift to her, but could it also be a a real problem for her because now she'll have votes on the record?
3: That's true, although you could really say that about any incumbent senator, that sort of the— best part about incumbency is the name recognition. People are used to you. They can sort of think about things you've done for them. But of course, the pitfall is that you actually have a voting record. People don't see what you've done. Now, she's had a bit of a complicated relationship with President Trump. She's embraced him, and she sort of scorned him when she needs to scorn him. And so I think she's going to have to figure out in the next couple of years what her relationship is with the president. Is she a supporter, or is she going to be a critic? Uh, most recently, she seems to be a pretty supportive, a pretty supportive um, ally for him. Now, as he faces more scandals in the next couple of years, that is going to be a big test for her.
0: When it comes to Senate elections, we had one in 2016. John McCain was elected. We just had one in 2018. (laughs) We'll now have one in 2020, and we'll have another one in 2022, Right. meaning four general election cycles in a row. We have had a U.S. Senate election or will have a U.S. Senate election in Arizona. Are voters going to get tired of these races?
3: Well, you know, one thing that I think has been really um, kind of uplifting about 2018 as a political year is how engaged voters have become. The midterm elections had the highest turnout in a century of midterm elections. So we've seen huge turnout. Arizona increased their turnout in 2018. So we're seeing a ton of engagement among voters, particularly in Arizona. I don't actually see uh, voters here expressing any fatigue at all. I think that Trump supporters are really fired up to keep their guy in power, and Trump critics are certainly very excited to try to get some new representatives.
0: In the November election, of course, we know voters put Democrats uh, in the House in the majority. That wasn't surprising. Midterm elections often go against the party in charge. If the gridlock continues in Washington, do voters further rebel in 2020 and possibly put Democrats in charge in the Senate also, and maybe the White House? Or is 2020 going to be its own special election?
3: I think that 2020 will be a reaction largely to the economy, as it always is. 2018, as it turned out, was not a good year for the economy. Unemployment numbers look good still, but the stock market does not. Uh, so I think that we're going to see in 2020 how voters feel about their own pocketbooks, about their own lives, and of course, their attitudes about the, con- the direction of the country generally
0: we never want to predict voters because they're oh, unpredictable. No. We never want to predict them again.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. But um what do you think they will consider a successful congressional term uh, if we look back in 2 years?
3: Immigration reform is a huge a huge priority for both Democrats and for Republicans. Gun control is a huge one, although I don't see any progress being made there. Um, Education reform is something people are really interested in. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of big items. Trump has been has shown a lot of interest in tackling big items in the last couple of years. And hopefully that continues.
0: We've talked a lot about Democrats because they are the new House majority. But what about Republicans? What do they need to do to avoid pitfalls? And what are some of those pitfalls?
3: Well, I think the Republicans have an opportunity here to really express their own desires, uh, as opposed to simply supporting the president. Donald Trump uh, is facing new critics, as I said, for example, with Mitt Romney, with other Republicans in office who are not particularly supportive of him. He's had a lot of departures lately. General Mattis is really critical letter of resignation, I think, opened the doors for more criticism. Lindsey Graham has been more critical of him lately. So I think the Republicans are going to really be able to figure out where they stand here and and whether or not they support this president.
0: This election was notable, as we've said, that Democrats took control in the House, but also record number of women. What's that going to do to voting and, and the future of Congress?
3: Well, we've seen a lot of engagement, again, especially within the Democratic Party for women in Congress. We, as you mentioned, have more women in Congress now than ever before. And I think that's going to be very motivating for a lot of voters. It's going to raise an interest for a lot of young voters. You know, political science research shows that when women are in government, actually female voters become much more interested in politics and much more engaged with politics. So I think this is actually a good sign um, for, for turnout, for engagement overall.
0: Do women govern differently?
3: You know, that's a really difficult question that people have had um, trouble answering, partially because women tend to represent different types of districts. So we do tend to see that women in office are more liberal, but not surprisingly, they tend to be elected by more liberal voters. So it's not really clear whether that's actually a function of their gender or simply a function of the constituents that they're trying to represent.
0: You said when women are in office, um, women tend to get more politically motivated, more politically active. Do they vote for women or do they just become more politically active and just vote more?
3: Well, research shows that they certainly become more interested in politics, more engaged with politics. In my own work, I have found that voters are much more likely to support a member of their own party than they are to support a member of their own gender. So if a woman sees a woman running as a Republican, for example, and she is a Democrat, she's not actually more likely to support her. However, seeing women in office generally, especially for young women, makes them much more interested in politics.
0: All right. I guess time will tell what happens with this new Congress. Yes,
3: no predictions here.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks for sitting down with us.
3: Thanks very much.
0: That was Samara Klar, a political scientist at the University of Arizona. Another point of interest with this new Congress is the role of Robert Mueller's special investigation into the president. Andrew Cohn is a professor at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. He's author of the new book Prosecuting the President, How Special Prosecutors Hold Presidents Accountable and Protect the Rule of Law. I started our conversation by asking Cohn, with this new Democratic majority in the House, can Democrats protect Robert Mueller?
1: Well, this question is in some dispute as a constitutional uh, matter. Uh, But the Supreme Court in 1988 held that Congress did have the power to pass a law prohibiting a special prosecutor from being fired, except for very good reason. Uh, And so I think the short answer is, under current precedent, yes. Uh, The Democratic Congress does have the power to pass that law if they can get the Republican Senate to go along.
0: And, and of course, it would be a law which would mean President Trump would have to sign it, which is an additional complication.
1: That's right. You'd require two-thirds majorities in both
0: houses uh, of Congress if Trump vetoed the bill, which presumably he would from a political standpoint do democrats in the house and some republicans even now former senator jeff flake uh, had wanted to to pass legislation previously that would protect um, the investigation do they really need to protect them since democrats in the house now run committees and they can launch their own investigations well the democrats new
1: investigatory powers are certainly represent an important change uh, in the political landscape and Uh, Those powers are likely to amplify the results of Mueller's uh, investigation. But a congressional investigation is not a perfect substitute for a special prosecutor investigation. The Democrats uh, in the House will not have the power to bring criminal charges to file indictments if it turns out that uh, the president or, uh, more important, uh, members of his family or members of his campaign staff uh, have committed federal crimes. Only Robert Mueller can do that. And uh, at this point, Robert Mueller can be fired by the attorney general at the president's direction at any time.
0: Since this case law has been on the books for a while, why hasn't Congress passed a law to protect a special prosecutor?
1: Actually, Congress did pass such a law in 1978 in the immediate aftermath of the Watergate scandal and Richard Nixon's resignation of uh, the presidency. That law required renewal every five years, and it was renewed up until 1998 when Congress allowed the law to lapse in the aftermath of Bill Clinton's impeachment, uh, which many Democrats thought was the result of a runaway special prosecutor, Kenneth Starr.
0: What's the history of presidents who fire uh, investigators like Mr. Mueller? Uh, Of course, I I guess the most recent would be President Nixon, but it's happened previously.
1: There are three examples in US history of presidents firing special prosecutors. Two of them survived without serious political consequence. Uh, Those were President Ulysses S. Grant uh, and uh, Harry Truman, both of whom were lame ducks uh, at the time. Uh, The third, Richard Nixon very much lived to regret it when he fired the first Watergate special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, in an episode that famously became known as the Saturday Night uh, Massacre. The political backlash was so swift uh, and so ferocious, Uh, that Nixon was almost immediately required uh, to appoint a genuinely independent uh, replacement for Archibald Cox. That turned out to be Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski, whose investigation ultimately forced Nixon from office.
0: We're talking with University of Arizona law professor Andrew Cohen. You recently wrote an article for The Atlantic magazine uh, about all of this, and you said some of this comes to the people, to the voters. If a president fires a special prosecutor or an investigator, in many ways it's up to the voters to take care of this. Does that anger potentially from voters always translate uh, at the ballot box?
1: Well, not always, and the voters aren't always angry. To take one relatively recent example, uh, the special prosecutor investigation run by Kenneth Starr, whom I mentioned uh, earlier, turned up evidence that Republicans thought amounted to an impeachable offense, but most Americans disagreed. In fact, most Americans thought the investigation represented an abuse of power by the special prosecutor. And not only was Bill Clinton not impeached, but he ended his presidency with one of the higher popular approval ratings of any president in recent memory. So at the end of the day, the American people do have to make a decision. They have to evaluate the evidence turned up by the special prosecutor. They have to consider whether any offenses uh, which that evidence suggests the president may have committed are sufficiently serious to represent uh, an impeachable offense or to represent a firing offense at the next presidential election. And at the end of the day, uh, the voters do have an important role to play in this process.
0: When it comes to the evidence that is gathered by a special prosecutor, we have in recent history a a number of special prosecutors. Walk us through constitutionally, since you're a constitutional law professor, what happens to that evidence, assuming that person isn't fired? And I guess we can take the case of Donald Trump and his campaign and Robert Mueller when all that evidence comes out. What happens to it? Well,
1: the answer has been different at different points in American history. The answer today is uh, that when the special counsel completes uh, his investigation, he is required by current regulations to file a confidential report with the attorney general. Right now, that would be acting attorney general Matthew Whitaker. In a few months, it might be President Trump's new attorney general nominee, William Barr. But in any case, Robert Mueller is required by those regulations, which are currently in force, to file a confidential report explaining his decisions to file charges or not to file charges. Uh, It will then be up to the attorney general to decide what to do with that report, whether to make it public, whether to pass it along to Congress, whether to pass portions of it along to the public uh, and Congress and the like.
0: What happens if the Attorney General decides to not make it public? Can this new Congress, especially a Democratic House, compel that report to be made public? They can certainly try. The House of Representatives, as part of its
1: oversight powers, its constitutional oversight powers, can issue a subpoena to uh, the Attorney General or anyone else within the Department of Justice who might be in possession of that report. It can issue a subpoena to... Robert Mueller, but the situation would get pretty complicated pretty quickly from there. It may well end up in a court battle over what is called executive privilege, a rule that allows the president to withhold some, but not all, internal executive branch documents from uh, scrutiny by Congress or the courts.
0: How often are presidents cleared by investigations uh, like this?
1: Well, it's a little bit hard to generalize. Uh, There have been a number of special prosecutor investigations over the course uh, of American history. Many of those have focused not on the president himself, but on the president's close advisors or associates, or in a few rare cases, family uh, members. It has been relatively rare as a historical matter for a special prosecutor investigation to seriously threaten a sitting president. Really, there are two examples of that. One is uh, the Watergate, Uh, Scandal uh, and the special prosecutor investigation, which ultimately forced President Nixon's resignation. And the second is Kenneth Starr's uh, investigation of Bill Clinton. Another case which falls close uh, to that category, uh, but probably didn't really ever seriously come close to threatening uh, a sitting president, would be the Iran Contra investigation during the Reagan administration. But the majority of special prosecutor investigations have actually ended without the filing of charges.
0: All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. I guess uh, everything is in the hands right now of uh, the new Congress and uh, the current president and the special prosecutor. We'll see how it goes. I would just add also the American people. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you very much. That was Andrew Cohn, a professor at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. His new book, Prosecuting the President, How Special Prosecutors Hold Presidents Accountable and Protect the Rule of Law, will be released January 15th. And that's the buzz for this week. A look ahead. We've just heard about priorities among elected officials at the national level. Next week, we'll ask local government officials about their plans for the 2019 Arizona legislative session, which begins later this month. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.